children at first rely on caretakers and adults to help them cope when they feel overwhelming feelings such as fear, anger, sadness, disappointment, confusion. You can notice how little regulation, self-regulation children have when an infant falls down in a park it will often not have any response. It will look up to its mother and it will base its response whether the mother looks shocked and the, the child might cry, but if the mother giggles and smiles, the child might smile because the child can't make sense of the physical experience of falling down, all the sensations of confusion and overwhelm, and match it yeah, to a coherent emotion. It relies on the adults to cue the emotion, and then it also relies on the adults to alleviate the emotion, to what's called modulate. So the child, you might notice with infants, they'll be hysterically screaming, and then the parent will fish out desperately some toy and put it before the infant, the infant will suddenly smile and become all fascinated with... That's my imitation of an infant. Uh, so... For a while, this process of having emotions, seeking connection with secure adults works, and then what happens is eventually there is a time in all of our lives where uh, we begin to separate, individuate. We aren't around our caretakers as much, and uh, essentially what happens is strong emotions occur, but there's nobody to run and connect with to soothe and regulate and help us process the strong, overwhelming feelings. So what does the child do? The child relies on thinking to step in and control the situation. So our thoughts actually begin, as Winnicott suggested, not as a way to uh, help decide what actions to take in life, but actually our thoughts start out as a way to produce the sense that somebody is there with us to help us regulate, distract ourselves from really overwhelming, painful, difficult emotions. Our thoughts essentially help us freeze or make ourselves unaware of the body so that we can go through fear, sadness, and grief without becoming too overwhelmed. Interestingly, or maybe not, I can, when I ride over the bridge, if I don't think about what I'm doing, if I get lost in thought, I'll ride over the bridge, I won't be aware that anything happens, and it'll just be all done with. But if I practice embodied mindfulness when I'm riding over the Williamsburg Bridge to get here, I huff and I puff and I'm uncomfortable and I feel my legs and my knees and I feel my heart beating, and it's, it's kind of not very fun. I try to do it because I'm a Buddhist teacher. I try to stay mindful. But there are times when not being aware of your body is really helpful. If you're daydreaming while you're doing a really strenuous, painful activity, it can help you get through it. Because essentially what you're doing is you're freezing the body. Now, let's use that analogy with emotions. Most of us early on in life learn that when we are faced with overwhelming, painful experiences, the best, most efficient way to manage the situations is to try to figure it out. Which doesn't mean we do anything, it just means we live in the dissociative realm of thinking so that we don't feel the overwhelming feelings in the body. Fascinatingly enough, 
a lot of neuroscientists, starting with Benjamin Labat and then Damasio and Joseph Ledoux and uh, so many others, showed that when people are doing rather uh, difficult tasks where you would expect they would be thinking a lot, they're not actually thinking a lot. <laughs> we can actually do very complex tasks without having any cognitive thoughts. We are actually doing it largely by following impulses that have been ingrained habitually over long periods of time. So you can do something that requires a lot of strategy and still not rely on your cognitive skills. But your cognitive skills are always there when you want to stop yourself from doing something. But even more likely, you will be lost in thought when you experience a very painful, emotionally resonant experience that you cannot find somebody to help you regulate. That's when you will find yourself obsessing. When you're faced with a, a challenging interpersonal situation, you've gone through a difficult uh, breakup, you find somebody's actions to be painful and uh, disorienting, then the mind will flare up, not to, even though it'll tell itself it's trying to figure out what to do, it's actually flaring up to distract us from the emotional overwhelm that we're feeling. Because well into our adult lives, we would prefer to even be with the most catastrophic, fearful, nobody loves me thoughts than actually feel the physical sensations of loneliness or sadness. We are just have trained ourselves from a very early age to be disembodied, dissociative beings. So to detach our awareness all the time from what's actually going on and to stay up in our cognitive minds, up in the realm of thought, fantasy, memory, planning, requires that we are able to detach with our present experience and feel permitted to not pay attention. The one challenge to dissociative thought, to the realm of just thinking our way through life, is if we actually have to pay attention, what the Buddha called heedfulness. So how do we give ourselves permission when people are talking to us, when we're walking down the street, when we are in... In, engaged in tasks or whatever, how do we give ourselves permission to essentially flee our awareness from what's going on and get lost in thought about the future, the past, what does this mean about me, do other people like me, 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 etc. That's known as, by the way, default mode network in neuroscience because people so frequently, more than half of the time we spend our lives lost in thought about ourselves. So how do we do that, even though we're supposed to be working or engaged in tasks or exercising or connecting with people? Well, we rely on these things called perceptions. Uh, some psychologists called it internal maps. The Buddha called it sana, perceptions. And these are essentially the expectations that you have about, the general expectations you have about people, places, and things that allow you to completely check out so that you don't have to pay attention. So you might notice you're walking down the street and there comes somebody who's crazy looking and they start talking and you immediately don't look at them, you don't take them in, your mind immediately comes up with the perception, this person is crazy. I'm not going to pay any attention. I'm just going to now think about uh, all the things I haven't yet accomplished in life, or whatever. Um, we might find ourselves doing that far more frequently 
oh, here comes a person with a briefcase, gentrifier, I don't care about anything they have to say to me. Here comes, here comes somebody with a beard and a baseball cap, and they're in their 20s. Hipster, I don't want to hear anything. They're in a, probably in an indie rock band. Don't want to hear. So, oh, here comes that person at work. All they do is complain. Later. Crazy songs from the past. Oh, you were saying something? Uh, so we were, we are dependent upon perceptions to quickly assess situations to tell us what we expect will happen, and to allow us to adopt the right posture and the right attitude so that we can essentially return to our favorite running TV show, our inner monologue. Also, uh, sauna, uh, these general perceptions, also guide us to tell us how to think in certain situations. I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was... Very young, I was much closer to my mother, who was, I was uh, I felt was an empathetic person than my father, who was a uh, drunk and a fairly uh, controlling, at times violent fellow. Um, at times very nice, uh, very in unreliable. So I associated with m connecting with my mother, watching European movies, watching British. TV shows. I guess she was, in retrospect, a snob, but, but good enough. Uh, she loved eating, uh, because uh, that side of the family is Jewish, she loved bagels and locks. So all these things now, as an adult, I love. I absolutely love, especially checking in with a British mystery at night. And it reminds me of childhood. When I see a new British mystery, it makes me feel, oh, this must be quality TV programming. It must be very good and worth my time. In fact, there's a lot of really crappy British TV shows, but I have the per ingrained perception that they're all good. It doesn't matter how stiff and archaic they are and how many times uh, I've seen Maggie Smith. I don't care. I'll just watch it. On the other hand, my father was associated with um, macho outdoorsy crap, which to this day I abhor. Um, he would love to, because he, he believed that men should be capable to survive in the upper outdoors, even though I grew up on the Upper West Side. Um, so he would drag me to, um, to uh, camping, and to this day, when somebody says, oh, we're going camping, the first thought I have is, what the hell is wrong with you? I don't, and there's no other thought. It immediately comes up into my mind. Why would any rational human being want to sleep on the cold earth where there's bugs and there's dampness and there's, there's things that fly around at night and there's no Wi-Fi? Why would you want to do anything that has to do with that? So I have all these perceptions based upon early life experiences. But even more so, we have perceptions based on what to expect, whether we should expect love, whether we should expect tolerance from other people, whether we should expect to have our needs met in the world or expect disappointment based on those early caretaking relationships we have with our parents. A parent that well receives a child's creative endeavors, will very often author a child that will grow up to be an adult that's confident in demonstrating their 
their theatrical or artistic skills without feeling any expectation of imminent rejection. On the other hand, parents that ridicule or make fun of uh, or turn away from their child's creative endeavors might well uh, author children that will grow up to be adults that will expect the world to not tolerate their creativity. If you grow up in a family where a parent is very soothing when you feel fear, you will as an adult expect and feel confident that other people will mirror your fear and help you manage it. But if you grow up with a parent who is uh, essentially shunning when you're angry and puts you in a room for quiet time, then you'll grow up with the expectation, the general belief, the perception that anger will get you isolated from other people and it's best not to be shown. If you grow up with parents who can work their way through conflicts, who can demonstrate that they can have disagreements and still not end the relationship, then you will grow up re relatively confident that you can express disagreement safely without it leading to devastating results. But if you grow up in a family where uh, parents constantly uh, in conflict, our conflict is resolved with violence or somebody storming out or some kind of dramatic scene that as a child made you feel unsafe, as an adult you will probably grow up to be conflict avoiding mm -hmm. and you will find you will struggle in relationships the moment where you start to discern other people are not on the same page as you because having to state your own needs will be terrifying. As social beings, our early caretaking experience creates the bulk of our perceptions which are then later shaped by adult or events that happen later on in your life. I like to, I have in my mind a metaphor that I used for a while, it will probably only confuse you, but if you think of a sculpture who starts out with this big blob of clay, the first gestures they do are going to have the greatest the early gestures they do with that clay are going to change the shape the most. They're going to start to create, a, if they're doing a portrait, a head and shoulders. And then over time, everything they do becomes more and more finely detailed. They start finely working on an eye or an eyebrow. But the earliest gestures are really shaping the basic shape and form. And it's the same way with a human adult, with a human mind. Our earliest first three years of experience really shape the personality clay. <laughs> I'm really overrunning this metaphor analogy. <laughs> but then later on in life, we're just fine-tuning and changing. Um, of course, what happens is many of the beliefs, the perceptions, the sanas that we carry around that tell us what to expect from other people, whether we can allow ourselves to be disclosing and vulnerable or whether we should remain um, tight-lipped and unemotional, whether we can trust others or not, whether we can be emotionally tolerant or we need to be run away from difficult situations, are based on early generalizations and early experiences that no longer really are true. For example, uh, when I was a kid, I was... Uh, uh, I remember my mother bringing me to see a friend of hers who had a large tabby cat who I went to pet, and of course it scratched my arms and I became hysterical, as a four-year-old does. And for many years afterwards, I was terrified of cats. 
until I remember at one point being in college and seeing a cat and having that flinch and that normal perception response, which is, why would anybody have cats? And then I realized, my God, I'm still reacting like a four-year-old that was, you know, the cat was bigger than me when I was four. As an adult, I am larger than the cat. The cat is no longer going to attack me. I can change my entire way of relating. And I started petting the cat, and my, I now love cats. And I had the same exact experience, by the way, with dogs as well, which I now love. We're all, in a way, like those, uh, the analogy of the baby elephant. Uh, it's not actually true, but it's an analogy that people use that um, baby elephants are at first trained in the circus by they put a stake in the ground and they, uh, the baby elephant can't pull the stake out, which is attached to a chain, which is attached to one of its legs. So the baby elephant grows up to be a full adult elephant, and it could, as the saying goes, it could easily pull the stake out of the ground. But after so many years of believing that it's powerless, it doesn't even try. So that's the way we are with our perceptions. We believe that we have only certain competencies in relationships, that we're not safe if we state our needs, that we're not safe if we have secure boundaries, that other people will reject us if we state clearly our goals and desires or if we work, express conflicts that need to be resolved. We carry around all these perceptions or generalizations of what we think will happen from our childhood, from earlier years, and we live trapped in the past. That's what happens when we don't examine the perceptions that not only distort reality, but change the way we act. Perceptions literally, as I just mentioned, distort the way we perceive experience, the way we understand it. If you grow up in a family where, um, where anger is not purely toler- is not well tolerated and leads to violence, when a partner or somebody at work starts to express any frustration, you will experience it through the, the tight body the hyperventilating breath, which is activated by those early experiences and by the perceptions that, oh no, this is bad, nothing ever good happens when people get angry. And all of that will then prime dissociative response, where you'll go up into your head and start trying to detach or escape the experience. Or you might even experience some form of panic. So these early maps can influence us even... Well, well, to the point where they cause a great deal of suffering, largely because emotional experiences can influence us long after they've been forgotten. Your cognitive mind starts working. You got online about five, where you start to be able to remember uh, narrative events. But the events that are stored emotionally in the right hemisphere start working the moment you're born. By around month six, you have a fully functioning emotional memory system. All of the experiences from six to five, six months to five, that is a lot of really important groundbreaking moments of your life that you will have absolutely zero ability to remember. You might think that you remember it, but those have been shown to be largely uh, masking memories that you construct out of your own imagination having been told what happened. We are largely very often governed by early events we cannot remember. We're not aware that they even happened. 
they're there, and they're essentially telling us what to think about other people and how to react to other people. If we grow up in racist cultures, we will very often have passed along to us before we are cognitively aware racist beliefs. If we grow up in misogynist cultures with, guess what? Not only are we in a racist culture, but we're in a misogynist culture. Strict gender expectations and beliefs about what women are capable of will be passed on to you even before. It will be modeled by your parents. It will be informed to you, and you will have no working memory of it being there. So all of these perceptions are can be present and can be influencing us, and we cannot be aware of it at all. Um, this is, by the way, why so many people are caught uh, uttering racist or uh, misogynist comments and then deny that they're racist or misogynist because they probably aren't aware of all the thoughts and perceptions that are guiding them. They just make the statements, but they're not aware that they're offering them. So... Um, it's very difficult to change these inference because sana, what the Buddha called sana, perceptions, are supported by neural networks. I can tell you that the Empire State Building is not on 37th Street if you believe it's there. That information is only held in a very few neural locations in your brain. A few neurons are required to keep the location of the Empire State Building. It's easy for you to change a fact because it's only got a few neurons supporting it. But if I ask you to change a belief, if I ask you to change your belief that all people who have beards are untrustworthy, and they are, by the way. No, I'm... <laughs> that's just not true. It kind of is. No, it's not. Uh, if I ask you to change that belief, that belief has been hardwired through neural networks, which are neuronal networks, to be literal, which are wired to your emotional system in your right hemisphere, your uh, the frontal lobe, the ventral medial, the midbrain. You've got a wide neural network that is sustaining a belief, and to change a belief requires an enormous amount of neural endeavor. It's very difficult to do. It neural beliefs, neural networks have been established over years of early ingraining when the brain is very fast in our early years at establishing neural networks. In adult life, it's very difficult to override and change a neural network, which is one of the reasons why as adults it's so difficult for us to learn languages, whereas when we're four or five or six, we can actually pick them up relatively quickly. The Buddha said that there are four core misperceptions that are constantly causing us suffering in the Vipalasa Sutta. The first is called Subha. It's the belief that people who are young and beautiful are good, <laughs> and people who are old and um, who are physically ailing are somehow not good or not trustworthy or not, you know, uh, are not worth time. Nietzsche is the belief that if we consume enough short-term pleasures and accumulate enough wealth and objects, then we will experience security. Of course, the more you consume, you don't wind up any more secure, and because none of these things provides anything more than a short dopamine burst, and it doesn't build up. And once you 
release the neuro, the, the dopamine, the neurotransmitter reward, you're essentially spent for a while. It will go away and you'll wind up back in the, uh, the feeling of emptiness or disappointment that led to the consuming or the accumulation. Atta is the belief that we have limited identities that don't change very much. We have personalities that are pretty much coherent and unchangeable. And of course, that is a delusion that is presented by the constant inner dialogue that's going on that obscures the constant emotional changes that you are experiencing in life, not to mention all the different impulses, all the different experiences you're having. And finally, there's Mara Bahaya, which is the fear of acknowledging death, the belief that if we don't think about death, it won't happen to us, or that we won't at least have to deal with it until the very end, and that we shouldn't think about death and making our decisions in life. So all of these are delusions. The Buddha also lists another delusion in the Sigalavada. He says that we tend to perceive people who flatter us and who are fun as true friends. <laughs> Oops. So, um, quickly to go over some of the things we can actually do. One is, if we're to do anything about the false perceptions that guide us into suffering, you can't investigate all of the perceptions. A lot of the perceptions that are guiding you in life are useful, they're true, and they're helping you. If you have a lot of perceptions that are steering you towards responsibility to taking care of friendships, to maintaining your connection with loved ones, to steering you to be honest. If you have perceptions which believe that these are important, then you have no need in any way to question or waste your time examining those perceptions that are not causing suffering in your life. But where there is repetitive suffering in life, we need to stop blaming other people and start investigating what perceptions are present that are causing the suffering. There's an old saying in 12-step rooms, and they tend to overdo it, but the saying goes something like, if I meet one asshole in a day, they might very well be an asshole, but if I meet two or more, I can be sure of one thing, and that's I'm one of them. <laughs> it is actually a good rule of life. If there's repetitive suffering, it means that I am not tolerant of the inevitable experiences in life, or I am somehow bringing an underlying set of expectations or general beliefs, i.e. sana, perceptions, that are guiding me to the wrong conclusions. The Buddha's recommendation is one, apamata. Apamata is different than mindfulness. Mindfulness is internal awareness, largely. Apamata is to stay fully present when we are engaged in situations when there's general suffering. If you engage with a boss who you believe is always a pain in the neck, rather than begin to go up into the mind to plan how you're going to respond, to tell yourself, oh, there he goes again with his you know, judgmental, completely incapable to be satisfied riffs. Stay fully present. Really take in what they're saying. And then when you respond, first respond back what you've heard rather than try to change the situation. You'll be surprised. It's a wonderful exercise in imago therapy. When 
couples are constantly engaged in warfare with each other. One of the first tools that therapists use successfully is the simple tool what's known reflecting. They'll have one member of the pair talk about an issue that they have, and then they make it very clear that no interruption is allowed. And then before they allow the second person B to respond or defend themselves, they say, first, repeat back in different words exactly what you heard, exactly what the other person said. I'm friends with a number of Imago therapists, and I've heard that virtually no couple at first can do that simple task. The woman might say, for example, to use a heteronormative uh, example, the woman might say, well, I feel that you don't listen when I talk about my job. You just tell me to quit it or tell me to, uh, that I should be grateful for my job. You don't listen closely to my emotional disappointment. And then they'll say to the guy, okay, what did you hear? And he'll say, ah, she was just complaining about her job, which he always does. No, but what did you hear? What? You wanted me to pay attention to that? <laughs> then if they, can, if they can master that task of simply repeating back the statement, the next task is can they repeat, can they state the emotion that they heard? So if somebody's talking about a scary experience, can they not only repeat the scary experience, but can, what the experience was, but can they say, I heard fear, I heard confusion, I heard doubt. If they can do those two tasks, interestingly enough, Gottman showed that just to do those two tasks, we remove the stonewalling, remove the judgment and contempt, and suddenly couples magically become capable of working through anything. Because so much of the incapability to connect was based on not listening, abandoning what the other person is saying, going off into the perceptions and the expectations rather than really closely listening to what the other person is trying to get across and what their underlying emotion is. It's really worthwhile to practice connecting with people who can provide what's known as the corrective emotional response. If you've grown up with people who cannot tolerate sadness, vulnerability, or if you've had long relationships where your partner was untrustworthy or was unavailable to listen to difficult content, it's important to connect with people who can give a corrective response. Very often that happens in a therapeutic environment or with a close friend before we go back into a romantic relationship to work through that. But it's very important that you go and have the actual experience of real emotional tolerance so that you can build a different perception. Perceptions are not things that we can just tell ourselves, oh, it's time for me to start trusting people. You have to have the experience that other people are trustworthy, that you can be vulnerable with them. You will never be able to undo a perception by telling yourself it's wrong. There are plenty of people who are drinking themselves to death with a full knowledge that alcohol is, is killing them. It's only when they fully perceive the, where the suffering is happening and finally also perceive the other ways of practice, the other ways of perceiving. This is why the Buddha, in the Vipalasa Sutta, he said it's important to rebalance these misperceptions by focusing 
on all the examples where youth and beauty doesn't last and where people who are older and infirm actually have a lot of wisdom to offer. Uh, <laughs> Nietzsche is, the rec is really following when we binge out on food or shopping or Facebook, when we try to solve our emotions by consuming, follow the process all the way to the end and see how long did the relief last? How long did the pleasure last? Follow that karma all the way to the end to show yourself that it doesn't work. Um, Anatta is looking for every example that there is no coherent, pure, lasting, static identity, that you are capable of many more feelings and many more impulses and many more skills than you tell yourself to essentially undermine those strictly limiting stories that we carry around. Finally, Mara Bahaya is uh, undone by Marana Sati. Familiarize yourself with the idea that I am going to die. That's one of the Buddha's five daily reflections. I am of the nature to grow old, to become sick, to die, and to be disconnected from the loved. All that I will be left with in terms of happiness and uh, uh, agitation will be caused by my own actions. So, in reflecting on death in the most important decisions that we have no guarantees, no, no, we can't be sure that we have ten more years or five more years, uh, that changes our perceptions in a very, very, very meaningful way. <laughs>